When I think of love, the first scripture that comes to mind is from 1 John 4:18, And it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I have to say that this last year and a bit has been difficult for me. And I'm sure some of you have experienced this yourself. What with COVID running rampant through our world and causing death and disease, lockdowns and loss of jobs, loneliness and sadness. Sadness because so many people were isolated during this time. And I'm sure you guys also may have experienced that. Ken and I have a daughter who works in uh, Toronto and lives by herself. I was really sad that I couldn't see her during this time, but it wasn't until the end of November that she was able to come and spend some time with us. It was so good to hug her and to hold her and to tell her that we missed her and that we love her so much. I work as a medical office assistant in a doctor's office. Pre-COVID, it would take me about 50 to 60 minutes to drive into work. But when COVID hit and the lockdown started, it would take me just around 22 to 25 minutes. The roads were empty. The parking lots were deserted. It was almost scary to get into work. I have to confess that I was afraid to go, to, go into work. I'm sure some of you experienced that as well. I was afraid to bring the virus back home to my family. When we opened the doors of our office and allowed people to come in, I think I spent more time cleaning and disinfecting all the examination rooms, then spending at my desk doing my administrative work, I realized that I was carrying a heavy burden. I used the time that I drove into work and driving back to work with the Lord. I would talk to the Lord daily. I would pour my heart out to Him and lay all my fears, my anxious thoughts, and my burdens at His feet. And God would just flood my heart with His love and give me His peace. And I knew that His presence was real with me at that time. I knew that His love was there for me and that His promises were real, that He would never leave me nor forsake me. During this time, God brought two beautiful couples into our lives, Beth and Kevin Goh and Selena and Adolfo Guzman. And Along with them, God allowed us to birth a new community group, a community group that met so many new friends from different countries. And it was amazing to see these couples just pouring out their love to these new people in Victoria. Daily, I realized that the more I read His Word, the more I love Him. And the more I love Him, the more I want to reach out and speak to the people around me of His love and His sacrifice and what He's done for each one of us. And to love Him means to trust Him because perfect love casts out all fear. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I know it's a little chilly outside, but I think we can do a little bit better. Good morning, everyone. That's better. Uh, First of all, if you are new here with us today, I want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Andrew. I'm one of the leaders here, and this morning is my great privilege to be uh, walking us through God's Word. Uh, And I want to just start off by acknowledging a couple of things. Uh, First of all, uh, Alvin did a great job of those those videos, hey? Yeah, he did a great job. Um, And isn't it amazing just to hear the nuance, different ways that God is at work uh, in our church families? We got to hear the stories from the four different ladies who kind of uh, stepped up to kind of share just the different aspects of the Advent season as as they kind of reflected on God's love, his joy, his peace, and his hope. Um, It's been really incredible just to be able to watch that. So thank you to those uh, four amazing women. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Advent, the season that we currently find ourselves in, uh, Advent is this, uh, this kind of gearing up. It's the four weeks that kind of lead up to Christmas. And there's uh, probably two specific nuances that I want to draw our attention to as we think about Advent. So the, the first is that we believe that the Bible is not just uh, a record of you know, myths and, and legends. It's not just a list of rules. It's not just some aphoristic statements that might have some purpose and meaning to make us feel better for the day. But it is, in fact the story, the true story of how God has been pursuing people since we have chosen to rebel against him. And one of the things that we recognize in Advent is that there was a huge portion of history where people were yearning and waiting and longing for God to come and act and bring about the restoration of humanity. And, and so there's this, this symbolic reality that we step into every year when we enter into this Advent season where we, we step back into history and we, along with the people from the past, uh, anticipate Jesus' coming, uh, which we celebrate at Christmas. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus on the other side of the cross, there's a second aspect because we live in this already not yet reality. We've experienced Jesus. His spirit is present and alive in us Um, But as Troy mentioned earlier, we look around and and things still aren't awesome. Uh, We look around, and COVID is a great example. You know, we we can look around and see the different responses that people have, the anger, the hurt, the frustration, and and, and we look around and we think this is not right. And so our hearts yearn and long for Jesus to come again and bring about the final consummation of what he has started on the cross to restore all things, to make all things New. And so uh, with Christians throughout history, we come into Advent and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And as a church family, a way that we've been sort of entering into this season to, to really anticipate and understand what the significance of Jesus' coming is, uh, we've actually been looking through Jesus' genealogy. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one over there, our free gift to you. You can also download a Bible app on your phone. Um, and I'm just going to dive in here, and then, and then we'll unpack this a little bit together. So Matthew starts his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, uh, by saying this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the culmination of God's work that he has done through the people of Israel. So he signifies that through the covenants made to Abraham and David. And then he goes on and he lists kind of the way that this covenant is traced through the family of Abraham. So he starts off in verse 2 saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nahashan. Nahashan, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was, had been uh, Uriah's wife. I don't know if you caught this, but... Almost all the names are dudes. They're almost all men. And that's because Jesus' time, his day and age, the people of Israel before that were what we call patriarchal society, which means they, they put an extra emphasis on the men. So whenever we know that something is kind of normal, anything that kind of is abnormal, and that should be a clue that we're supposed to pay attention to it. And what we see here is that there's these abnormalities in that Matthew doesn't just record Jesus' lineage through the men, but he also has these four women that he includes in Jesus' genealogy. We start off with Tamar, and then we go to Rahab, Ruth, and finally today, the wife of Uriah. And what's interesting about this is, as we've looked over the past four weeks, or three weeks, we've seen that each of these women are not probably the kind of women that you necessarily want to be highlighting in your family tree, especially if you're making the claim that you are the coming Messiah, the promised king of the Jews, the fulfillment of God's purposes. These women come from positions of mess, of sin, of brokenness. And yet, for some reason, Matthew thinks it's significant that we, as readers, see that they are part of Jesus' history. So we're going to look at the fourth woman in that list, and she doesn't even get named in here. Uh, she just gets called the wife, or Uriah's wife, uh, but her name is Bathsheba, and you might be familiar with her. Uh, she was a wife of King David, uh, but her story, like many of the others, is a story that's messy. It's broken. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, for sake of time, I'm just going to, I'm going to read parts of this and then I'm going to summarize some parts of this. But I'll start off in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So just a little bit of history here. Uh, King David, he's come to power. He's consolidating his kingdom. And now he's expanding Israel's borders. And he is kind of the, the protector of Israel. That's his job. And so the author here wants us to understand that David should be the one going out to war. It says when the kings go to war... David sends out Joab. He sends a proxy. So instead of fulfilling his role as the commander of Israel, as the protector of Israel, he stays home. And, and this is a clue that the authors want to have to tee us off, that there's something not right about the situation. And it continues on in verse 2 and says, One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace 
And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. The, uh, the Hebrew language has a couple of different words for beautiful. Uh, and there's some that are just kind of generic to kind of talk about generic beauty. Uh, this one is, if, if I were to try and think of like an English equivalent, it'd be like, she hot. <laughs> that, that's kind of what it's, the Hebrew word means. Like there's a sexual attractiveness that is intrinsic in the, the term beautiful that's used here. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is where the story should have ended, right? Full stop. She's married. She's committed to another. Okay. End of story. But it's not where it stops. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. I don't want to be crass here, but do you feel the uncomfortableness of this story? Let's just process this a little bit together. David, a powerful man, walking on his roof, sees a woman that he's attracted to. She is the wife of another. He summons her and sleeps with her. If we get back into the Hebrew text, what's interesting is the wording here actually reflects the wording describing what Eve does in the Garden of Eden. She saw the fruit, and she reached out and took it because she desired it. She saw it was desirable. And this is the same language used in the Hebrew text to describe what David does here. Because the authors want us to understand what David is doing. We have a, a word for what just happened. It's rape. A powerful man saw a woman that he desired, had her summoned to him, and then slept with her. If you're feeling uncomfortable right now, you should. This is not a pretty story. It's a pretty ugly story. And it doesn't stop here. It's undeniable that this child is David's. Uh, the authors want us to understand that when they say that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, they want us to understand that like, her period is gone, she's fertile, she hasn't been sleeping with anyone else. This is David's child, so it means that he has a problem on his hands. Because it does not look good for a king to be taking his bodyguard's wives. That could lead to some issues. And so what's he going to do? Well, the first thing he tries to do is cover it up. So he sends for Uriah, who's out fighting the battle that David should be fighting. And Uriah comes home. And David says, dude, you've been working hard. Go home. Visit your wife. Eat, drink, rest. 
but Uriah is a man of integrity. And he cannot, he cannot take his foot off the gas when he's in war mode, when his brothers are sitting in tents preparing to potentially put their lives in the line. He's like, how can I do something like that? I can't go and enjoy life when I have brothers who are out in the battlefield. So he refuses. He goes and he sleeps in the stables with the servants. David's like, okay, I got to try something different. So he gets them liquored up. He has a party. He's like, if I get him drunk, I'm going to send him home. He's going to stumble home. He's not going to know what he's doing. Even if he doesn't sleep with his wife, he can probably be convinced that he did. But again, this is a man of integrity. He's even in his inebriated state, does not go home. David's problem does not go away. So this is what he does. He sends a letter to Joab, the commander of his army, and says, I want you to attack the city. I want you to put Uriah in a place where the battle's going to be the most fierce. And then when he's in the thick of it, I want you to get everyone who's with him to abandon him here, there, so he will die. And indeed, this is what happens. So let's take stock of the story so far. Who is Bathsheba? Uh, she's a woman who has just suffered the indignity of a rape that leads to a pregnancy. And then her husband is murdered to cover up the crime. It says in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. This is an ugly story. And it highlights the ugliness of sin. We should read this and we should have that like gut, like wrenching feeling in the pit of our stomach where we're thinking, like, this is, why is this included in the Bible? Like, this is a mess. Like, who would want to know about this stuff? It, it's an ugly, ugly story, and it highlights the brokenness, the ugliness of sin. It's not a good thing. It's something that should cause us to have a visceral reaction to and isn't sin ugly? I mean, just think about the ways that we experience it against us. Think about the, the wife who, you know, after thinking that she's been married to a man faithfully for, you know, years, discovers that he's been nursing secretly a pornography addiction. What does that do to their trust? What does that do to her vision of herself, her own self-worth? That's ugly. What happens when a husband catches his wife cheating on him? What does that lead to? It's, it's ugly. Think about, you know, we talk a lot in our, in our era about residential schools, and we hear the horrors, people in power, using their power to sexually abuse those in their care. And we look at that, and we see that sin is ugly. And that's just talking about sin in a sexual way. But think about all the other ways that we experience the ugliness of sin. I've had conversations 
with people on many occasions where they share with me words that were spoken to them by people that they trusted, that they loved, that were harsh, that were condemning, that they carry with them long into the future. It's ugly. When we see the way that relationships break down because of the way that people treat each other, parents and children, spouses, friendships. It's ugly. And some of us, when I describe what Bathsheba went through, the ugliness she experienced, it's not theoretical for you. You know what it is to experience the ugliness of sin done to you. And it begs the question, where was God? Did he see this? Where is God in the ugliness of the sin done against us? Does he know? It's interesting, this is a little bit of a tangent. I want to leave that last thought ringing for a little bit, but I want to take us on a little bit of a tangent. Um, we, whenever we're preaching and we kind of have a few things that we need to juggle, uh, you, you know, there's this interesting dynamic that takes place. So we're in Advent and we're kind of walking through these four women, but then we also have these Advent themes. We just talked about this theme of love. And so as a preacher, I'm always trying to think through, like, how do I tie these threads together? And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. This is a story where you're kind of like, ugh, love. Like, I don't know. Because the reality is, is love might have been present, but it was not a pretty love. You know, David might have, in his own mind, even tricked himself into thinking that he loved Bathsheba, but his actions showed that it was not her that she, he loved. David loved one person. It was himself. But as we think about the ugliness of sin, there's something that we must acknowledge. Sin is almost always, and I would, I would actually go so far as to say always, an act of self-love. How does one justify the violation of another person? You say, I'm more important. I love myself more. When your child is like when you're berating your child because they didn't do what, they, what you wanted, what is that? Do you, do you, is it you loving your kid? No, it's, it's you loving yourself. And so as we look at the ugliness of sin, there's something that we must acknowledge in this, which is that there is a brokenness in our loves. They are disordered. And when they are disordered, they cause us to perpetuate the ugliness of sin on one another. And so in order for this to change, our love has to change. Let me continue on in the story uh, in chapter 12. What happens is God does indeed see what took place to Bathsheba. And he sends a prophet named Nathan to David and Nathan comes and he confronts David, but he confronts him in a very interesting way. He tells him a story. 
and he says to David, uh, there was this, this man, there's actually two men, and they live in the same town. One was very rich. He had many, many animals. One was very poor, and he had one little lamb. But he loved that little lamb. I've heard it said that in Victoria, there are more uh, people with pets than with kids. Uh, so they probably would get this man and his little lamb obsession. Like, we love our animals. I, I, I confess, like, I'm not a, a pet person, but I have a dog, so I've kind of become a pet person. And to my shame and embarrassment, I oftentimes, like, uh, you know, treat my dog probably a little bit more like a uh, part of our, our kids than a, than a puppy. Um, but here's the thing. This guy loves his animal. It says like he nurses it. It eats at the table with his family. Like they love it really deeply. This other guy, this rich guy, he has flocks and herds. And then suddenly a, a guy comes to town, one of his friends, and he's got to cook him dinner. And you know what he does? He goes to the poor man's house, takes the little lamb that he loves, and barbecues that, makes little lamb chops for his friend. If you're hearing that story again and you're feeling a visceral reaction to it, you're supposed to. And David does. He sees the injustice of it. He, he flies off the hook. He's like, this man should die. He must pay back four times what he took from the poor man. He's angry. He's like, like lathering at the mouth. He's frustrated. And then Nathan says these words in verse 7. You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And David gets it. He gets it. He sees what he has done. But it's not over. Because the brokenness can't just be erased. It happened. It had to be dealt with. Justice had to take place. So Nathan says, God's going to forgive you. You've been forgiven. But this, this happened. Justice needs to be done. And so you're going to lose your son. And that's what happens. David's son gets sick. David more, uh, like pleads with God, like, don't, don't take my son from me. Don't take my son from me. And he begs and begs and begs. And the servants who are kind of tasked with caring for David's needs, like, they're at their wit's end because he won't eat, he won't sleep, he won't get dressed, he won't do any of his kingly duties. He just sits on his hands and knees and begs. And then the child finally dies. 
And David hears the servants talking. They don't want to tell him because they're like, if he was this crazy when this kid was sick, how, how crazy is he going to go when he, he finds out that the, the child's died? And, and this is what happens. He hears that the child's sick. And then it says in, uh, in verse uh, 20, Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes, and he went to the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, food was served him, and he ate. How does David get to this point where he can go in and worship God after experiencing this? Well, this is evidence for us that that love problem had shifted. The confrontation that God has through Nathan with Jesus, uh, through Nathan with uh, David, is a confrontation of his heart. He's, he's saying, David, you have loved the wrong things. You have loved yourself when you were called to love me. And because you haven't loved me, you produced this ugliness in Bathsheba's life, and I want to deal with it. And we see that it is in this act that David's heart is dealt with, that he's changed. But as we look at this transformation that's taken place in David's life, we have to go back and think, you know, this, this sermon is about Bathsheba. And it's interesting, we don't actually get a, a picture of how Bathsheba reacted in this time. I mean, this was her baby, a baby brought about by horrible circumstances. How, how would she have felt? Would she have been relieved? Maybe. As someone who's gotten to watch my wife carry children twice, though, I, I, I think this was probably sorrow upon sorrow. She, she carried this child and then lost this child. She continued to suffer. But this interesting thing happens. As we look forward in the story, we see that there comes a point where she and David are brought together in mourning. And rather than this see and take kind of relationship, it's a, a oneness, a join together. How is it that Bathsheba was able to come to a point where she could be joined with a man who was responsible for bringing so much ugliness into her life? And how is it that any of us, when ugliness is put on us, that, that, that we can move forward. That we cannot allow that ugliness to become so entrenched into our own hearts and our own lives. The thing that we have to understand as we look at this story, I ask the question, where was God in the midst of this? Where was God in the midst of the ugliness, in the midst of the, the terror, in the midst of the horrible uh, aspects of this story? There, there's something that we, we, we have to get about God, and it comes through. God wants to make us holy. He wants to make us like him. And in order to do that, he has to deal with our sin. He has to deal with our brokenness. He has to deal with the ugliness. 
And for that to happen, it often has to be exposed. It has to come to the surface. David's heart was oriented in the wrong way. But in order for that to be identified and and corrected, it had to be exposed. And, And I don't want you to miss what I'm saying here because I'm not saying that God wanted David to go through and violate Bathsheba that God orchestrated that event, but God was in the midst of that event exposing the brokenness of David's heart through this action so that he could actually change and transform David. Remember last week, Chris said, uh, he he reminded us that uh, God is always doing 10,000 things and sometimes we can only see three and sometimes we can only see, we can't see, sometimes we can't see anything. And I bet you, as Bathsheba looked at this situation, she was thinking, how could God be present in this? What we see in the story is that God was indeed present in this, and that it was his grace that allowed David's sin to be exposed so it could be confronted and dealt with. And when we understand this reality, it actually can change our hearts and our outlooks when we look at the brokenness, when we look at the ugliness of the sin done to us. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean here to flesh this out, because I know this is maybe a little bit of a complex idea. I have a daughter. uh, I think many of you know this. uh, My daughter, Isla, she's a firecracker, to say the least. She is a ton of fun, and she has attitude like nobody's business. Um, And, uh, you know, as a parent, you watch your kids, like, especially when they're little, just, like, fly off the handle at you like scream, viscerally scream at you, like try and hit you. And it's, it's actually pretty, you know, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit cute because they're like tiny humans. Uh, but, it, but when you kind of like look at what's happening there, it's ugly. It's like this child is so consumed with their own self-desires that they think they can just treat everyone around them like garbage. And when you're tired and you just want your kid to do what you want them to do, these moments can just feel like I have to win this battle, and it becomes this thing where you just get upset and angry. But what happens when I look at this from the perspective that God actually wants to deal with my daughter's sin? And so this is actually a moment of his grace where it is being exposed so it can be dealt with. That completely changes my orientation and my heart to the situation. It doesn't mean that I'm not hurt or frustrated when she is flying off the handle, but it means that I can actually show grace in that because my perspective, my mindset is that God wants Isla to be more like him. The same is true in our marriage relationship. Uh, I am far from being a perfect husband My wife, Shannon, is far from being a perfect wife, although I'd say she might be a little closer to being a perfect wife than I am to being a perfect husband. Um, But even, you know, in our marriage, and I think we love each other dearly, uh, you know, we, we know each other very well, and we get into conflicts, and we know exactly the things to say to hurt each other. Now, some of you are married, and you get what I'm saying. You've known each other for so long, you know exactly what's going to be the killing blow. And if you come into this situation where you're just frustrated and angry at what the other person's doing, 
it's just going to lead to increased anger, increased frustration, increased bitterness. But if, if we actually look at it as saying, hey, this is, this is actually God's grace where he's exposing things in my partner that he wants to deal with, then it can completely change the way that we respond and react to this situation. And again, it doesn't mean we excuse those actions. It doesn't mean we justify those actions. It means that we look at those actions and say, this is something that God wants to deal with. How can he use me in that process? And think about just some hypothetical situations. The man who grows up in a dysfunctional family and then showers that dysfunction on his children and spouse and abuse. It breaks his family, and yet it is that breaking, that shattering, that exposes the deep brokenness in his heart that must be dealt with, and the family's restored, and they move forward looking a little bit more like Jesus. The spouse who catches her husband looking at pornography, and yet that addiction is caught, it is dealt with, and new trust and healthiness built upon mutually wrestling through this creates a healthier, stronger relationship because the one that existed before was fake. It was false. The man who catches his wife in an affair, light is brought to that. They deal with it and they move forward. How does does any of these things happen? It happens when we understand that God is in the business of making us holy. God was in the business of making David holy. And Bathsheba actually got to participate in that process. What happens, though, when we don't see that? Well, what happens is that the thing that, that the ugliness, that was visited upon us, those, those ugly things can actually start to become part of our identity. Uh, think about the people that you know who have experienced abuse and how it can define them. They carry that on in anger, in bitterness, in an inability to trust, in pain. Bathsheba could have been defined by the sin done against her. She could have always just been Uriah's wife, the woman who had been violated. But as we read through the story, what we see is she ends up becoming the queen mother. Her son Solomon, we'll get to that in a second, who she bears to David, actually becomes the next king of Israel. She doesn't just stay in this place. What was it that transformed her? She had to come to a point where she understood that God was at work transforming David and that would allow her to reach to a point where she wasn't defined by what was done with her. She was able to forgive. There's one final thing I want to say as we're finishing off here. We can look at this and see, yes, God can be at work in other people's lives We see that in the picture of David in the brokenness that is exposed as they visit their sin upon us. And maybe that can be a point of comfort for us is just knowing, hey, um, you know, God is actually at work in someone else's life. But but that still doesn't minimize the pain, the suffering, the, the hurt that happened to us. But this is where there's really beautiful good news because God is not only at work in the midst of our suffering. God is actually at work through 
are suffering through the ugliness that's done to us. As we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, we see echoes, foreshadows of the ultimate story that takes place through Jesus on the cross. A picture of the gospel. You see, David sins against an innocent Bathsheba, and yet they are restored to each other, and it produces new life. It says in verse 24 um, of chapter 12, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and they made love, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. This story is ugly, it's messy, and yet there's this reality that God actually brings about restoration, and that restoration is grander than even David and Bathsheba know because Solomon carries on God's promises all the way through to Jesus. Is actually through this broken situation. This is why Bathsheba is included in Jesus' family history. It's actually through this brokenness that God accomplishes his plans to bring about our salvation. But we see a picture of that work in David and Bathsheba. David sins against Bathsheba. Their child dies for it, and yet it is through that death that their broken love is restored, that ugly love, that love that put David first. We see that transformation that he goes to his wife. He mourns with her. He doesn't take her. They mutually come together in a sexual act that produces new life. And this is a picture of the gospel because we are like David. We have sinned against God. We have violated his law, his word, his trust. And though God is not a powerless victim like Bathsheba, he became one. Why do we celebrate Christmas? It's God becoming human, a humble baby who comes, he lives a perfect life, and yet he is crucified innocently on our behalf. Our love for God is broken, corrupt, self-serving, and yet the consequences for our brokenness are not visited upon us. They're visited upon God's Son. And the result is that we are brought into a new, restored relationship with God, and it produces new, eternal life for us. So the final thing that I want to leave us with as we close off, if you're here and you understand the suffering of Bathsheba and you have been finding yourself defined by it, defined by the ugliness. You can't let go. You can't move forward. The story of Bathsheba should give us hope because it reminds us, reminds us to look to the cross of Jesus. So the cross is Jesus entering into the ugliness of sin. The cross is not a beautiful picture, right? We, 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 We make it really nice you know, we make nice golden crosses or Celtic crosses. We bejewel them, and, and they look really fancy. But when you think about what the cross is, it was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of suffering. It was an instrument by which the Roman Empire would help everyone else understand that they were subject to the power and authority of Rome by watching someone slowly suffocate as they 
were nailed to this piece of wood. There is no picture more ugly of sin than humans trying and successfully, really, killing their creator. And yet, it is not despite the cross, it would actually through the cross that God brings about the means of our restoration, our redemption, our resurrection. And so for those of us who understand what Bathsheba is going through, the story of Bathsheba is a story of hope. That God can actually enter into those broken things that are done to us and use them for his good purposes, just as we see him do ultimately in the cross. It wasn't despite the cross that God brought about the means of our salvation. It was through the cross. And so our invitation is to enter into the hope that we have in Jesus. When we do that, it's only through this reality that we can actually step into those places of grace with other people. where We can actually allow ourselves to see that God is at work exposing their sin because he wants them to be changed and breathe forgiveness in us so that we aren't defined by what's done to us, but we find freedom in what was done for us by Jesus on the cross.